Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. My girlfriend's about to leave me. My mother's dying. The band's going to break up. Well, my girlfriend left me. My mom died and the band broke up. And I went into a depression. Horrible, horrible, deep, dark. If one's never been in one and you and you don't, you don't understand how bad it can be, never take it lightly if somebody tells you they're depressed. I didn't go to a therapist, which I should have. I didn't take medication or do anything, which I should have. I almost killed myself because my pain was so bad. But one thing I did not do, I did not go back into my drug. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today I have J.J. French. J.J. French is an American guitarist, manager, and producer. French is most famous for his role as the founding member and one of the guitarists of the heavy metal band Twisted Sister. As a guitar player, manager, producer, and executive producer, French has sold over 20 million albums, performed in 34 countries, and performed live over 9,000 times. His life was incredibly large and glamorous, but for years he struggled with addiction and watched as he and his friends waded through the minefield that was the music industry and drug use. After years of watching the drastic devastation of drugs on his life and the lives of the people he cared about, he finally made a lasting change. Today, he devotes his career to writing and motivational speaking while also overseeing licensing and intellectual property rights for the Twisted Sister brand. This was super fun. JJ is a very dear friend of my family's. And it is a joy to be able to talk to him about his experience. What I wanted to convey was, of course, the fascinating, glamorous life of a founding member of Twisted Sister, no question, but also that there are different paths to recovery. And while JJ's path to recovery wouldn't have been the one that worked for me. I think it's so important to talk about all the different ways that people get to a life that they don't want to run away from. I do not want people to believe that there is only one way to get into recovery. And it's incredible that he was able to create a band that did not do drugs or alcohol, did not drink or do drugs while being a touring famous metal band. It's it's incredible and such a rad story of how that happened. So I will be quiet and let you check out this amazing episode. Thank you for being here. If you're new, please check out our 250 plus episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please check out JJ French. He does all sorts of motivational speaking. And you can check out his podcast, The JJ French Connection Beyond the Music. All right, let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Awesome. JJ, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me in, in, in what I consider a very important podcast interview for me, because I'm going to probably go into some details I've never gone into about my past, which is perfect for the content of, of your. And by the way, since you've been on my podcast and you're on this week, you know, you're on yes, this week. I've got a lot of great comments on that, you know. Oh, so, good. Well, we all have to do our public service. Don't yes. We? Exactly. Tell me a little bit before we get into kind of where things got spicy uh, for you. What was life like before sex, drugs and rock and roll? Growing up in Manhattan, Upper West Side, Jewish kid who came from very you know, non-religious parents, a very typical profile of a uh, super reformed Jews. Like they never, in fact, in fact, they never even told me we were Jewish. I mean, that's how much non-information <laughs> I received about my Judaism, like nothing. I mean, if you watch Seinfeld, 
it speaks more to the cultural Jewishness of what my atmosphere was like, full of like irony, humor, sarcasm, and just kind of disregard of, of everything. And one day I said to my mom, we're Jews, right? How come I'm not getting bar mitzvah? And my mother goes, because you got to go to Hebrew school. Do you want to go? I went, sure. So she said, here's a Hebrew school. I went, I went one day, I came home. She goes, what did you think? I said, God, it sucks. She goes, I could have told you that, but you needed to find it out for yourself. And that was the last time that was ever discussed. Right? That was it. So table that stuff. At about this time, my next door neighbor, who's considerably older than me, had a train set in his bedroom. He was also into pop music. So we had a record player and I was into pop music. We liked the same kind of music. And he used to invite me over to his apartment, which is right next door. I mean, the next door apartment. He invited me over to listen to his 45s and play on his train set, which was this took up the whole bedroom. You know, I would go over there like the 10 or 11 year old kid that I was. And this guy was probably... 18, 19. Mm. Never thought twice about the age difference. We like the same music. And one day I noticed there was a pile of magazines on the on the train set uh, board, and they were of boys swimming naked, like in, in camp scenes or something, which yeah, I guess I thought it was weird, but I didn't really ask anything about it. And then he picked up one of the magazines and uh, he said to me at one point, would you mind taking your clothes off? I went, uh, yeah, I would, and ran out of the house, did not tell my mother. I was ashamed that somehow I did that. Right. And never spoke to him again. Now, while all this is going on, I'm having a hard time at school. You know, we didn't have the phrase ADHD back in the 60s. I don't know when that became a phrase. You know, I don't even know when that became a, an official diagnosis for somebody who has learning disabilities. But I was extremely smart, but I wasn't paying any attention in school. I was just getting by in school, just barely. Like I was passing the test and I was graduating to junior high school, but I never really was paying attention. And then the Beatles come into our life. Well, two things happen. Kennedy gets assassinated, which is a big deal, right? Because my mother wanted me to get into politics. My father wanted me to get into the jewelry business. But one of his friends was murdered in broad daylight, shot dead on the street in Miami. And then uh, then two months later, Kennedy was assassinated. I said to my dad, when his friend was killed, that's a dangerous business. Then when Kennedy was assassinated, I said to my mother, that's a dangerous business. And then the Beatles come out two months later. And I go, well, that looks like a pretty safe bet right there. You know, <laughs> like I said, I mean, here I am. Yeah, I'm 11 years old watching the Ed Sullivan show, like a million guys my age who say the same story. You ask guys my age and who become successful, they go, watch the Ed Sullivan show, it changed my life. I watched the Ed Sullivan show, saw the Beatles and went, wow, that looks like that's what I want to do. Okay. So that was immediately Beatlemania took over. I have to tell you that uh, had an invisible person shown up at that very moment and put their hand on my shoulder and said, John, uh, you are going to become a rock star. And I would go, really? When? And you'll get your first gold record 20 years and six months from today. I think I would have said, well, screw that idea. That's another idea. But, you know, ignorance is bliss. We don't know these things, right? Mm -hmm. So I joined the Boy Scouts, do a couple of years in the Boy Scouts. And it's 1965 rolls around. And then everyone's growing their hair, you know, and I wanted to grow my hair long, but my Boy Scout master wouldn't let me do it. So in the summer, in the September 65, I start growing my hair. They kicked me out of the Boy Scouts. And uh, I want to be in a band. I, I want to desperately be in a band, but I couldn't afford a guitar. So I found a bass guitar and I figured, well, there's not that many bass players. There's a lot of guitar players around. So uh, I put a little band together in my neighborhood with a kid named Bing Gong and a drummer named Paul Herman. And we called the band John, Paul and Bingo. And we played a, um, a talent show in my junior high school. And we played two songs. We played Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. And I couldn't get high by the Fugs, which when a 13-year-old kid sings a song called I Couldn't Get High, gets you yanked off the stage, but I wasn't doing drugs yet. I just, and I didn't even know what that meant, being high. I just heard about it. And uh, that band kind of broke. But then I joined a band that blew us away that night called The Bats. And The Bats, I started playing bass in The Bats, but I didn't have, I couldn't get the bass guitar. So what happened was I had sold Boy Scout cookies and broke the record for my local Boy Scout chapter the year before. And uh, the Boy Scout master called me and said, would I sell cookies again for the Boy Scout troop? And I said, you threw me out for having long hair. And now you want me to sell Boy Scout cookies? And my wow. father said to me, you know, that guitar you want is 25 bucks. Tell your Boy Scout master that if he pays you 10 cents a box commission, we'll sell a ton of cookies. And I'll take you to 47th Street because he was a jewelry salesman on 47th Street. He knew, every, he knew everybody. And my Boy Scout master agreed. So we sold 242 boxes of cookies on 47th Street and I made $24.20. So my father kicked in the 80 cents, you know, the big spender. That yeah. he <laughs> and, I, and I bought my first guitar. 
And and I still have that guitar, by the way. I still have it. I love that. So, you know, so then I'm messing around with bands, messing around with bands, messing around with bands. And, uh, but still nothing is, no, I'm not getting high, just kind of stumbling my way through school, barely getting through school. Come that September, still not getting high, right? The Sgt. Pepper album came out in June. Jimi Hendrix's album came out in July. The Doors debut album came out in July. You know, this is a time. This is it. Rock and roll is everywhere. And my friend Danny Birch says, you got to smoke a joint. And I went, I'm afraid. He goes, no, man, everything will be fine. So we go to his house. His mom is out. I start smoking a joint and I didn't get high. And he goes, no, 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 no. Go into a closet and just keep smoking until you get high. So I closed this closet door in his apartment and I smoked and I got pretty wasted. And I walked out of the uh, of the, a closet and went, wow, wow, this is great. This is great. How much is this? They said, well, it's a joint. It's a dollar. I said, you paid a dollar for a joint? Yeah. I said, wow. I said, does it come by joints? He goes, no, you buy a nickel bag. I said, what's that? It's $5. And you get like 20 joints. And I said, so my retail head just immediately perks up and goes, wait a minute. If I can buy a nickel bag, five bucks and get 20 joints and sell them for a dollar each, then I can buy four nickel bags, right? Which I did almost immediately. And I sold them immediately. And I'm like, wow, I never had money. I went, wow. So I said, what do I do next? He goes, well, you can buy an ounce of weed. And I go, an ounce? How many nickel bags you get to an ounce? He goes, seven. How much is an ounce? $15. I went, $15 for an ounce. Now, by the way, folks, I know this sounds like, you know, like uh, prehistoric numbers, right? <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't right. say it. But, you know, you have to be sitting there going, $15 an ounce, right? So I bought an ounce. I made seven nickel bags, sold them like this, got $35. Like, I'm never going to have to ask my parents for money again. Meanwhile, I'm smoking, like just constantly fucked up. But as messed up as I was getting, I was still be able to do the math. I was getting through my, you know, my year in, my, my, my year um, in school. And uh, the dealing accelerated very quickly. I was buying ounces, then quarter pounds, then half pounds. Then I bought a kilo of weed, which is 2.2 pounds, which I paid $150 for. Okay. Now, now we're getting prehistoric. <laughs> okay. Now, right. Now we're getting into that. Was McDonald's even open back in those days? No, mm -hmm. McDonald's wasn't even around in those days. So I remember buying a kilo of weed. I remember meeting them on West End Avenue and thinking that every cop in the neighborhood knew I was doing a drug deal. Like just thinking everyone's following me. Everybody's seeing me. Took the 150 bucks and I, I I met my friend. He handed me the shopping bag and then I I must have walked three miles, stopping in every vestibule of every building, thinking I'm being followed by somebody. And I finally get home with 2.2 pounds of weed, which I immediately turn into ounces, quarter pounds, and I'm rolling in money. I'm just rolling in money and I'm not doing any schoolwork whatsoever. All of my friends, none of us cared about anything except getting high and going to shows. Now this is the early days of hippie dumb. What existed before us? Pot leads to heroin. That's what the scary story was. If you do this, it's going to lead to heroin. So my mother and father confront me and they said, um, you got to stop doing that. I said, you don't understand. We're not the 50s. This isn't that. We're flower children. This is just fun and games. This is nothing. I said, you know, you think it's going to lead to heroin? What kind of stupid, like 50s, stupid nonsense could that be? Turned out to be exactly that. Meanwhile, I didn't give a shit about school, nothing. And then 1968 rolls around. And uh, I start dealing acid without having taken LSD. I'm dealing it. One day I said, shit, if I'm dealing this stuff, I should take it. Find out what the hell I'm selling, you know? I go down the fountain. That's where all the hippie junkie or all my stone friends are. We're, we meet, you know, it's, we started about a year earlier. And I drop a tab of blue cheer, which I'm dealing. I start feeling weird, like, and I went, maybe I should go home before this hits me. And I start walking back to the west side to get on a bus. On my way where Strawberry Fields is across from the Dakota, I stop and I lay down on the grass and I look at a tree. And I remember reading Timothy Leary where he said, if you take really good acid, you'll see the chlorophyll going through the veins of the leaves. So I look up and I and I and there the LSD is hitting and I'm looking and I'm watching. At least I'm hallucinating the chlorophyll through the van. Whoa, I better get home. I literally get home. I walk in the door. The acid hits full bore. I look in the living room and there are my parents watching the funeral of Martin Luther King, except they had turned into two giant hogs. Reading the New York Times, by the way, pigs reading the Times, watching the Martin Luther King funeral. And I go, oh, oh, God, I need to go to, a, you know, I didn't know what was happening. I need to go to a mental hospital. I need to go to Bellevue. How do I tell my parents to take me to Bellevue? I'll be telling two pigs to take me to Bellevue. So I go into my room, I close the door, and 
Ashley, within a minute of closing the door, the entire room, which was covered in Dayglow posters and blah, 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 all posters come flying off the wall and circling and the walls are heaving and the windows are heaving. And I look down at my heart and it looks like one of those cartoon characters who falls in love, you know, with a boom, 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 boom. And I'm, this is what I'm going, oh, Jesus Christ. Oh my God, what am I doing? What am I selling? What the, f like most people, Ashley, at this point would take an experience like that and go, you're lucky, right? You're lucky, but not me, not me. Why? Because I had friends who really took a lot of acid and they said, man, it's like a macho thing. You just have to learn how to understand your hallucinations. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, take little bits and learn how to control your hallucinations. So that summer of 68, I took LSD every day for three months in tiny increments to see if I could learn how to control my hallucination. Now, that's a very logical thing, right? That's, it, it seems... Microdosing? I mean, we didn't call it that, right? Yeah. We didn't understand what we were doing. But we were smoking 20 joints a day. Let's be really clear about this. My diet of drugs was every morning, I had five pounds of weed under my bed. I'd roll it out, roll my joints, go to school, smoke the whole way up, You'd take a break, go to, the, go to the bleachers we had in my high school, get stoned, come back. And this was my daily diet. I'm not doing any schoolwork, right? The I mean, the fact that I'm passing any test is mind-blowing. Then there's anti-war demonstrations. Then there's the civil rights marches. Then the summer of 68, everything is, you know, exploding. You know, the cities are in flames. Figuring no one's really paying attention to me and my dealing is doing really well. This seems to be pretty good. And this goes on unabated for another year or so. And here's where it gets really, this is where it all gets really screwy. We're now three, four years into the drug culture, the hippie drug culture. Heroin comes in big. And it was so stealthy that nobody was really paying attention. It just became another one of the drugs that was around. Heroin. Well, you know, obviously by this point, I'm Mr. Acid. I'm Mr. DMT. I'm Mr. Mescaline. I'm Mr. THC. I've done angel dust, smoking 20 joints a day. I'm obviously Superman. Nothing's going to affect me. And everybody around me starts doing heroin, starts snorting it. All of a sudden, the drug dealing starts bartering with heroin, whether you knew it or not. Like you were taking heroin in, selling it, taking this out, selling. This culture, this drug, this infused drug culture in New York City, which is surrounded by the Fillmore East, so you could go see every rock hero you ever want to see every week for $3. Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead, you name it, three bucks. I mean, it was a paradise, you know, to be 18, 19 years old. Meanwhile, I am grudgingly acknowledging that my mother may have been right, but fuck it. I don't care. So I continue to get high. Been and right about it being about a, the leading to heroin, whether gateway, she knew it or yeah. not, because she was trying to scare me. So I don't know. Right. Meanwhile, it's pissing me off that it's exactly what she is predicting. This whole scene that we were in was just deteriorating. Friends of mine are being murdered in drug deals now. Now it's getting serious. Now the games are, it's no longer a game. So one of my best friends, David, he starts getting into heroin really heavy. And he takes me to a jazz club and we do heroin with Elvin Jones, the famous jazz drummer. 1971 rolls around and I'm working in a department store to make my mother happy while I'm dealing. And one of the guys who worked in the department store comes in one day and says, I got some really good heroin. What do you got? And I said, I got some great acid and some great weed. So we decide to exchange. And he hands in the heroin. He says, go ahead, go to the bathroom and do it. So I go to the bathroom. And I do the whole bag. And I come back and he goes, where's the bag? And I went, what bag? He goes, the bag I gave you. I said, I did the whole thing. He said, you, you what? I said, I did the whole thing. He goes, you're only supposed to do two on two. And I said, I did. He goes, oh man, that's not good. And I immediately started to feel sick and my heart started to race and realized that I was ODing on heroin. I went in the bathroom. I started turning blue and I took my fingers and shoved them down my throat. And I made myself throw up and keep throwing up and keep throwing up and keep throwing up and keep throwing up until I was surrounded by vomit and blood and my heart rate calmed down. And I realized this is no longer a game and this has got to, this has got to end. So I tell my girlfriend, she's fully invested in the heroin world. And my best friend, Victor at the time, fully invested in the heroin world. They're shooting now. Victor's shooting. I look at the two of them and I said, you know, I, I can't continue this world that we're in because you guys don't see it, but you're going to die. And I don't want to die. And I don't want to go to prison. Six months goes by. Now we're in, now we're in basically early 72. And I'm, and I'm confronted with 
a decision, which was stop doing drugs, because without a doubt, I will be arrested for dealing, I will be murdered, or I will OD on something. But I ha- So I let Victor and Gail know that I'm cutting them both off. And I accused them of having an affair because Victor accused me of having an affair with a girlfriend of his three years ago, which was true, by the way. Allegedly. It was true. And then Gail told me she was having an affair with Victor, but I think she was doing that to make me jealous. Anyway, I have a fight with Victor. I end my relationship with her. And then uh, I said, okay, John, okay, so you're going to go straight. How are you going to do this? And I, I went, okay. So I... I opened up a black box that I had in my room with all my drugs in it. And there was mescaline, psilocybin, STP. There was a whole bunch of pills. And I said, I'm going to take it all. I'm going to take everything in this box. And if I wake up tomorrow, that'll be the end. And I took it all. I woke up the next morning. I was alive. I took stock of myself. And I went, that's it. And that was it. That was it. Except for I continued to smoke weed for a little while after that until Twisted started, which was six months later. So I committed myself to be straight from drugs, but I, as I said to my mother, I got good news and bad news. The good news is I'm not doing drugs and dealing anymore, but the bad news is I'm a transvestite. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out which one she thought was worse. You know, <laughs> maybe she thought, maybe the drug thing isn't that bad, you know? Can yeah, you bring that yeah, back exactly. a little bit? Um, but the problem with that, Ashley, was, so now I'm totally straight. And I joined a band in New Jersey, which was a good thing because I could reinvent myself in Jersey. Nobody knew me. Problem with being in New York City and the problem with addictions and is the people around us, what they expect from us. That's a lot of pressure on you. Everybody in New York knew I was a drug dealer. Everybody knew you go to John's house. And I knew I had to get away from it. So when I joined Twisted Sister at the end of December 72, they didn't know my past. And I didn't have to, I, you know, they said, oh, but what do you do? I said, yeah, I don't, you know, not smoke weed. You know, that's it. I'd have to live up to their expectation. They had no idea. I did not know I was joining a band of alcoholics. And I had no experience with alcohol because the hippie culture I came from, there was no booze. Hard to mm. believe. Maybe, but there never was. No one drank beer. All you saw was Boone's Farm wine at a $2 wine at a party. Never alcohol. And when I tell that to people, they find that rather interesting, that alcohol was never part of the equation. But it never was. So I didn't know anything about alcohol. I hated to sound that naive, but the band I joined was a bunch of Jersey guys who were 21. And these guys are, they're drinkers. And I don't drink. So we're playing in a bar. 50 years ago this summer, we got our first big gig at at a club in the Hamptons. So you're 20 years old. You're living in the Hamptons upstairs, you know, playing the entire summer, living for free, dressed as a woman, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I guess. And they're all drinking. You know, so my singer says to me, he goes, hey, man, you know, you got to try drinking. And I went, I never did. He goes, really? Now you're in a bar, Ashley. So what do you do when you play bars? Well, if you got a drinking problem, maybe bars aren't the best place to be living in, right? Or working in. Right. Well, right. I'm not drinking, so I don't care. So he says to the bartender, take some shots, give it to JJ. Uh, and he starts pours in Chivas and Jack Daniels. I'm like, because, you know, this is my life. This is my new life now. You know, I'm thinking, oh, okay. I don't know. Never knew about alcohol. Let's try it. I, I tasted Chivas. I'm like, oh, that's horrible. Southern Comfort, oh, that's horrible. I went down the list. I went, you drink this stuff? I said, this is awful. And that was it. That's the sum total of my alcohol consumption. You wow. get that? Like, it was awful. I think what's crazy about all of this is that you talk to so many rock stars and their addictions and alcoholism, they just skyrocket when they're surround when when the fame and the and the traveling and the the sort of nomadic, like all of that, it gets worse. And for you, it coincides with when you stopped. It's so unusual. It's totally unusual. And that's a good point you make. Here's what makes Twisted Sister so unusual. First off, those artists that you talk about, whether it's the Rolling Stones or the Aerosmith or all the typical stories, they went very quickly from from record deal to stardom, like pretty fast, you know? So the trajectory was quick. They were in their early 20s and the world was their oyster. They came from these little towns in England or whatever. And all of a sudden you're a celebrity. You can do whatever you want, all the girls you want, the drugs and all that. Twisted spent 10 years trying to get a record deal on the Long Island club scene. In that 10 year period of time, not only did I not drink, but 
we went through band members who had alcohol problems and seriously screwed up the band's trajectory and were fired over and over again by this taste for it went beyond the obvious. I don't need you to screw up my life. I'm trying to become famous and make money. Your inability to perform because you're wasted. You know, when I'm working six nights a week, five shows a night, unrelenting, 250 nights a year, every club date, you work until six o'clock in the morning. That's a lot of work you got to do. You can't do it when you're high. Now, I will add another wrinkle into all of this. Shortly after the band got together, like two years into the band, here I am straight and uh, and witnessing the the alcoholism that existed in the the remaining members of the band and it was getting heavy like you know like really bad they're drinking singers slurring his words the reason why i talked to the audience was because the singer was so drunk he couldn't talk someone had to talk so i walk up to the microphone and go thank you for coming to the satellite please tip your bartenders like, that's how it all started because michael was too drunk to talk you know he jeopardized a couple of record deals but here's what happened, Ashley. Two years into it, my girlfriend and I were having a rough patch, and I was in love with her. And my mother had gotten sick suddenly. She was very, very ill. And these two events happened within weeks of each other in December of, in November of, of 74. And then we played a club in Adams, Massachusetts. Back in those days, when you played these rooms, a lot of these rooms provided places for the band to stay. So we were all living upstairs in a barracks type of a room. And what happened was one night, the singer is approached by a roadie who says that the bass player put a cigarette out on him. The singer was drunk. It was Michael. And he was looking for the bass player, Kenny, to yell at him, how dare you put your cigarette out on this guy, Greg. And by the way, this guy, Greg, was uh, a meth addict, number one, which I didn't know. And number two, Kenny didn't put a cigarette out on him. They were walking by each other on a staircase. Kenny had a cigarette. And as Greg squeaked by, an ash fell off. But in Greg's mind, Kenny put a cigarette on him. He tells Michael. Michael starts screaming, where's Kenny? He runs upstairs to the barracks type room. And the only person there is the drummer, Mel. Those two guys went to school together. And he goes, where's Kenny? And Mel goes, you idiot, you drunken moron. What are you doing? And Michael goes, he put a cigarette out on Mel. And Mel goes, shut up. Like, you know, you're just ranting like an alcoholic alcoholic moron. Well, Michael had brought a rifle with him to go hunting because this was up in the woods. Michael grabs the gun and he aims at it. Mel. And he says, I can kill you. And I walk in to that scene. I'm about to witness a murder and the end of my rock and roll life is going to be here, right here. I'm going to be a witness. Band's going to break up. This is going to be it. And Michael, as drunk as he was, threw the gun down and they got into a fist fight. And we decided to break the band up, which at that point had been together two years and gotten very successful. So now let's put this together. My girlfriend's about to leave me. My mother's dying. The band's going to break up. Well, my girlfriend left me. My mom died and the band broke up. And I went into a depression. Horrible, horrible, deep, dark. If one's never been in one and you and you, do, you don't understand how bad it can be, never take it lightly if somebody tells you they're depressed. I didn't go to a therapist, which I should have. I didn't take medication or do anything which I should have. I almost killed myself because my pain was so bad. But one thing I did not do, I did not go back into my drug. There was a part of me, Ashley, that just said, John, you successfully walked away after five years of heavy drug use. You're not going to let yourself go back there again. So I had a stopgap. And I, I don't know the answer, Ashley, as to why. I don't know what it was that gave me the strength to rather kill myself rather than go back and get high. Okay, which to this day, I marvel at because I don't understand it. But let's just say this. On the day of my mother's funeral, I started keeping a diary because I needed to express my pain. And I kept that diary going for 15 years. And when my depression of those events ended after nine months, it was August of 75. So a full eight or nine months after the, the cataclysmic conglomeration of these events, where I was going to bed every night in abdominal pain, like mental anguish, not sleeping, not eating, got down to 149 pounds, and with internal pain because it was so... I woke up one morning in the summer of 80, of, of, of in the August, and there was no pain. And I thought, well, that's a mistake. The pain will come back later on today. And it didn't come back. So I went, oh, it'll be back tomorrow. And it didn't come back. And this was my self-diagnosis. My self-diagnosis was that these traumas were fairly surface, not clinically deep enough so that they were almost like a cut on the hand and given enough time that cut would heal. I, and again, I'm not a doctor, so I can't say what it was that uh, how I got over it. But I will say this, because of that diary, because I kept diaries for 15 years after that, 
Anytime I remotely became close to a mental state like that, I went back to the diaries, read what I wrote, and then went to a therapist and got help, never to fall that low again, because that low was horrible, scary, could have led to my end, could have led to my suicide, because I was in that much absolute pain. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Ashley here. As many of you know, I got sober at 19 after going to many treatment centers. And years later, when my aunt passed away as a result of her addiction, my father and I and our business partner, Ian Crabb, started a telehealth company in 2010 called Lion Rock Recovery. We started with a PowerPoint and a dream, hoping to help people overcome barriers to treatment like affordability, accessibility, and privacy, which we were able to create in this program that we started. Today, Lion Rock Recovery, our little PowerPoint, treats people all over the world. We have over 200 clinicians, and it's an amazing program. We have an intensive outpatient program that has so many different time tracks to fit into people's schedules and specialties like professionals group, LGBTQIA, trauma, and many, many more. We are able to help people anywhere in the world with any schedule, and all of it can be done privately. This is our dream come true, and Lion Rock Recovery is available to any of you who have family members who are struggling or if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody. Our admissions team is there around the clock for a free phone call, also a live chat on the website. There's so much there that we've worked so hard to bring to you. Please check it out, lionrockrecovery.com, or you can call the 800 number, 800-258-6550. Thank you so much. So when you and I talked about doing this episode, you had some trepidation about whether or not, you know, well, I didn't get sober the same way that, you know, people get sober. I don't want people to think that, you know, they can do the same. And I do, while I I do, you know, have that trepidation too, I also think it's really, there are people out there with your story. There are people out there who, for whatever reason, they are able to cease use. And for those of us who thought we were those people who tried to be you, we get information when we try to stop using. We get we get valuable experience and information about ourselves. Oh, I'm not one of those people that's going to be able to stop on my own. I'm not one of those people who's going to be able to refer back to this diary or refer back to these painful things and use them as information to stop further use. And I think I really value what your experience is because I don't think that we gain anything by burying them because it didn't use the formula that works for a lot of people. And and I, I'm grateful that you, you're here to, to talk about it because not only did you stop using and then you, you this diary, a diary, a written dialogue and um, stream of consciousness is so valuable. I mean, people don't give it enough credit. And so you used that and you used a lot of tools that we use in sobriety. Just you didn't know that's what you were doing. And then eventually you brought those things to a therapist and it speaks to the strength of what you did that you then went on to have this incredibly successful band, rock and roll band, where it would have been so easy. It's not like you stayed in a monastery so that you wouldn't get, you know, use drugs and alcohol. It, I mean, you you were there. It worked. It actually worked and has worked. And you've used and grown as a person through your entire career. And so I, I really, I'm, I'm glad we get to talk about it because I know there are people out there who said, I did just stop and I did, you know, I do have these skills or tools that work for me. And it's okay if that's your story. You know, here's the other point to that we didn't really get to is that I became so anti-drug and alcohol because of the ex-members who were destroying my ability to become successful because we were having problems with their drinking and drunk that I said, we're only going to hire straight people. Well, let me tell you something. Nobody wants to do that. Right, I mean, right. you're joining it because you really, I mean, 
to be fair, so we would have interviews with band members and they would go, new guys, they go, by the way, we really, we don't like drugs and alcohol and we really would prefer that you don't use them. And they go, whoa, whoa. And I go, no, no, really, if you, if you say you don't use them, that's fine. But if you want to continue to use them, let us know now so we can just end the, end, end this thing right now. Well, I remember a lot of them lied because they wanted to be in the band. But when D came in, you know, D, can I hire D? I said to him, do you drink or do drugs? He goes, he was really defiant because I hate that shit. And I went, oh my God, you really hate it? He goes, yeah, I hate it. I went, I can't believe it. I almost said, well, you could be the biggest jerk in the world, but if you don't do drugs, I'll, I'll take you, you know? So D had the same feeling I did. For the Basically, same reason? I just never did it. Mm. Never did it. D's first sip of alcohol was on his wedding night when he had champagne. He hates, doesn't like it. Now, he'll drink wine on occasion, but he never was high. And when Mark Mendoza, the bass player joined, I said, you don't drink until he goes, I hate that shit. I went, wow, I can't believe I found a band of guys who not just, I don't have to worry about them. In other words, it's not me trying to convince them. It's just, this is who we are. Screw that. It took so many years for the band to become successful that by the time we were successful, we were now 32 years old, not 22 years old. So we're 32 years old who had reached a certain level of success because we worked really hard. So the formula for success was never based on sex, drugs, or rock and roll. It was just based on hard work and a work ethic, which is what my book is about, which is what I talk about in my book. That's not what people expect to hear from a heavy metal band. They want to know it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, and fairy dust. You made a deal with the devil, and now you're all like on coke, and you're drinking, and there's hookers, and whatever, whatever. And for Twisted, it was like almost being in the Jehovah Witnesses. I mean, we were so straight, and what would happen is we would go on tour with these other bands, and our tour manager would go in and tell these other bands, by the way, I'm just letting you know, the guys just don't get high. So, I mean, don't waste your time. Just don't even bring it up because, you know, you'll just get them, they'll, they'll curse at you. And rather, we'll just want to keep it light and you do what you want to do. Knock yourself out. Don't invite them to parties. They've got no interest. So consequently, Ashley, we were never invited anywhere because we were antisocial because we didn't party, which was totally fine by me. I could care less. My job was to blow other bands off the stage because that was our MO as a band. You know, our, our motto was look like women, talk like men, play like motherfuckers. That was our business model. And and because we grew up in the club circuit where you had to eat the eat your young, we had to destroy the next band. That's all it became a competitive blood sport for us. I didn't need to know these bands. I don't know what they did. We toured with everybody you can imagine, you know, Metallica, this, that, and the other. I don't know what they did. I can tell you this. One roadie from one band offered me Coke in the entire five years that we toured internationally. One roadie in one band. So when people say to me, how do you avoid it? Well, I just told you, nobody ever talked to me about it. Nobody ever invited us anywhere. We didn't go anywhere where the stuff was at. But one roadie came up to me and offered me Coke. And I said, did you ever get the message? He said, no. I said, you know, the band doesn't do that shit. And he goes, oh, I I'm sorry. I said, yeah, if you ever do that again, I'll knock you through a wall, you know? And that was the, that was it. So when someone says, how do you avoid it? Well, number one, if it's not who you are, so it's not like I avoided temptation. This is what I need you to, I need people to hear. No, this. that's great. It's yeah. Nothing to do. You could put 20 pounds of Coke in front of me and it wouldn't matter. You inadvertently did all the recovery things that we talk about. You created community. You surrounded yourself with people who were doing and felt the same way you did. You just didn't know that's what you were doing. So you, you said, I don't do this stuff instead of worrying how it was going to look or, or figuring out, well, I'm in a rock and roll band. I have to let people know that that was you. You're like, this is who I am. This is what I do. You built this community of people who were doing the same thing you're doing and you traveled together. You led with it. You insulated. You didn't wait for someone to offer it to you. You had your tour manager was like, don't even offer these guys. Don't invite them. Don't. So it just wasn't part of your experience. And you led with that. It's who you are. That's what you said. It's not what you do. It's who you are. You had the diary, the journaling, eventually you had the therapy. You, you know, you like the, all the things you were doing them. You had a passion in your life. You were working hard. It came together, the same things. It just, it wasn't the typical way that it looked. And to me, that says it all. It's like, it doesn't, you know, it, we spend a lot of time in the recovery community worrying how it looks and how people get to where they need to go. And what I've learned in the, you know, 20 years that I've been, it, you know, around recovery is it doesn't matter how you get to where you're going to go. You know, it matters what works. And for many of us, the way that you did it, we tried it and it didn't work. So we had to try it a different way, but it's okay if you want to try that. It's okay. It just, 
if something doesn't work, you have to pivot. For you, I mean, even you you ended up pivoting after you did a year, after you quit drugs, you did a year of smoking weed and then you pivoted from there. And so I think that, you know, you have this beautiful recovery story. It's just that the recovery community is often biased against a story that isn't the one that they believe people need to hear. You have said something to me, which is really important. You said that inadvertently or unknown to me, I was doing the things that one needs to do to make sure that one succeeds in this. And you know, in my book, I write about the fact that Twisted wound up doing a system of exercises that we didn't know we were doing at the time, but this is how we consistently came back over and over and over again. And it wasn't until I had years of perspective that I could understand exactly the how Twisted Sister does what Twisted Sister does. But in the book, I talk about recovering from rejection, you know, because rejection is such a big part of my business. Like, you know, what do we say? Our joke is Twisted Sister was turned down more times than a bedsheet in a whorehouse. And we've come back more times than Freddy Krueger, right? That's the, that's the line of Twisted Sister. But the truth is that unbeknownst to us, our ability to come back was based on a formula that we didn't know we were doing until years later. So what you're saying to me is I was inadvertently also doing a formula that I didn't realize I was doing, but I was doing the very things that you talk about. And what we would do is we would mourn the rejection, like we were told, you know, that we sucked, whatever. We'd mourn the rejection, and then we would we would reflect on the rejection, then we'd retool based upon the reflection, and then we would reapply. And we changed the songs, changed the set list, changed the this. And the joke is, you know, just because someone says you suck doesn't mean you don't suck. You know, you could really suck, and you just need to pay attention to the fact that they may have a point that you suck. And you should pay attention to that because they may not be wrong, even though your own narcissistic belief in yourself says no one has the right to say you suck. You possibly could suck. So our morning uh, reflection, retool and reapply seems to be this underlying reason why the band was able to come back over and over and over. As the band's challenges kept coming in, we kept figuring out ways to overcome those things. My story is unusual. That is true. The fact that T and Mark never got high, that, that was just luck, right? I How mean, you turned down a lot, a lot of people to get to those people. And they may have heard that. They may, you know, so yes, luck. But also, I don't mean to say like manifestation, but literally you were turning down people who didn't fit that mold. So you made space right. for people who did. You're 100% right. In fact, one of the guys that didn't join the band straight out just said, you don't got to get high. I don't want to be in your band. I want thank you. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, I had a drummer who said he didn't get high, which turned out to be a lie. And eventually, the last show he did when he was fired, he OD'd on a San Francisco speedball, which was heroin and methadrine, and collapsed in front of radio station DJs at a radio station party that we had just thrown at a club. And he was in backstage, and we introduced him to these two guys from a famous station, and he collapsed in an epileptic seizure. So what happens? He eventually becomes a Christian years and years later, and he actually pickets the band with a bunch of like, uh, you know, like evangel wow. evangelicals saying that we're the devil. And we're like, how is that? How are we the devil? It's about really the story is about staying true to yourself is that no matter what, you're always going to find dissenters. You're always going to find someone better and someone worse, someone richer, someone poorer, someone godlier, someone, you know, less godly, however, however, whatever it is. And the thing is, if you stay true to yourself, then that is how you will find your path. And that's what you did. And your success is a testament to what you guys created. So grateful that you came on today and, and shared your story and, and that people can read more about this in your book. Will you tell them a bit about where to find your book and where to find your podcast? Thank you. So it's, it's a it's called Twisted Business. You can get it on Amazon like everything else you can get on Amazon. So it's easy to get it. My podcast is the JJ French Connection. That's J-A-Y-J-A-Y-F-R-E-N-C-H, the JJ French Connection. I also do motivational speaking for a lot of organizations. If you wish to contact me that way, you can email me at askjj. It's A-S-K, askjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjj
Here's one thing, Ashley, that I will say. Our record label did not want us to talk about us being straight because they said it was going to hurt our career. I'm in a business that actually supports this kind of dysfunction, but I'm here to tell you, you don't have to fall for that dysfunction. It's a myth. It's total bullshit. You don't need that to be successful. And we're proof that you don't need that to be successful. So I thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Hello, beautiful people. No, no. I think that was fine. It was it was British. <laughs> Hello, beautiful people. I'm Ashley Blow Blessing Game, and I'm the finest chimney sweep in these parts, yeah? <laughs> and I can sweep a chimney with the best of them. I forgot where I was <laughs> and what I'm doing and who my name is and who my hair is and how I'm lifing. You All know. fair things. I, on Friday night, Cassie and I were laughing yes. so hard that I, like, pulled a rib. Yes. <laughs> so, when I, so when I was laughing at that story just right now, I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> oh, ah, yee. We're so old. Ow. Yep. I mean, it's a good, it's it's both good and bad. It's right? great like, it's, and it's embarrassing. Yes. Like I literally to her, I said, "What if I was like a professional athlete?" You went from laughing and pulling a muscle to what if I was a professional athlete? Stay with me. Stay with okay. me. Okay. Okay. I'm following. They have to say, you know, whenever that happens, they have to say why they're on the DL on the disabled list. Uh, and okay. They would have to say on the 15 day DL for rib pain caused by laughing at. <laughs> Instagram but, videos with his wife. <laughs> but you should have seen the video. Mine, yeah. my the first time I threw out my back, it was a really tall bed, and I'm leaning over with my arms on the bed on my mm -hmm. phone, and then mm -hmm. I just stood up and it went out and I hit the deck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mine was mine first time I threw out my back was <laughs> pulling Lariope, like those little flowers, out of the garden in our front yard. Mm -hmm. Loriope. I'm unfamiliar. Yeah. They're small, very small flower. But it's deadly. There's, there's, there should be no lower back happening in this exercise. It's but, the bend over. Yeah. And then I woke up the next morning and I was like, oh no, the Loriopes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> gardening, gardening can be a tough one. Now I understand those knee mats. Mm -hmm. I was looking oh, at those, yeah. you know, cause like <laughs> I was note we, to self. That's also <laughs> an official, I think age the marker. Knee mats. The knee I was mats. looking at knee pads the other day. <laughs> Let me tell you. No, 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 no. I was non -slip in even. Non -slip. <laughs> I was in the gardening section mm -hmm. of home Depot. Sure. Sure. They had gardening accessories and I happened to notice mm -hmm. the value. Sure. Of a of, knee apparatus. Of a yes. knee apparatus <laughs> for the use of and during gardening right. sessions. Okay, let me just let me just test our compatible ages here. When you think of Twisted Sister, what is the very first image that pops into your head? I would say I will accept one of two answers. If you're pulling down like a TV memory of Twisted Sister. The tampon Sister, commercial. They had a tampon commercial? Yeah. We're not gonna take it. This was a tampon no, commercial? Not, yeah. I was I I didn't know this one. That is the big song that I know, but I have because JJ, I've known JJ for 10 years and he he's married to someone who's basically in my family. It's hard for me to separate that cuz I've been to a sh like but I didn't grow up. I didn't like I didn't do glam rock. So I the only connotation it has for me is in this one avenue. So I don't know, but like it, it, the, if you say Twisted Sister the first thing I think is tampon this commercial. tampon commercial with <laughs> we're not going to take it. And then um I also remember thinking smart, you know, like let's make the money. Don't worry about what's being shown, you know? And then and then, of course, JJ and, and the band. Mine is D testifying before Congress, because that's that's a video that pops up a lot. Is like, why do you it was testify? About like, it was about like censorship, I think. Oh, but it's like, Typical. it's a video that comes up a lot where it's like, D Snyder from Twisted Sister outclasses these senators. And then it's like, he makes like a very compelling 
you know, statement or whatever about censorship. Yeah, that's all. The the tampon commercial sounds better. You can look it up. It's <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. to be honest, my music listening, like what I listen to, is seventies, nineties. I sound like one of is there nineties and today. Nineties uh, today. <laughs> it's a seventies, nineties, and then like maybe some two thousands, but not much. And then it stops straight up, like no new <laughs> no new friends. 80s didn't didn't really it didn't really get me. It surprised it was a cocaine time. It seems like there's a lot of cocaine anthems coming from the 80s, yeah, you know? Yeah, but the 70s had cocaine. Sure. I you think know? they've had it for I a mean, while. I mean, Clapton had some yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's been around Bayer had cocaine, yeah, yeah, you know, they yeah, yeah. put it in their drugs. You know they, they put had drugs in their drugs. They just put drugs in their drugs. Do you know that they had a um I was listening to an interview where they were putting cocaine in like baby teeth gel. Oh boy. And I was like, I was born at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> I just was, I've never heard somebody talk about like rock and roll in that way where you're like, okay, so you were, you were leading with, we're this clean band. We're turning away people who might be, have problematic. Like, what is that? I've literally I never heard this story. I can't How believe do you it find worked. That? That's like six guys, right? Yeah. And, and they're all in twisted they're all sister. In that was, no, I agree. I think that it, it's actually interesting too, because when I first met him the story that I was told like that what I had heard was that he's straight edge and like that he very much is not into substances like he's not into it I did not know that that was a result of having had experiences with it all I knew was he's anti-drugs anti-alcohol so it's it was interesting to me to learn his deeper story about that he had those experiences with it and no longer wanted to create it. Cause my, usually when I hear that from someone who's not like I'm sober, it's a result of growing up in a household with parents who had very, very bad addictions. And they are like, I am totally against blah, blah, blah. And that's so like, that's usually when I hear that, I think that, but I, it was interesting to find out that he had had his own experiences, what that looked like. And then the, you know, the real commitment to being in a band that didn't do that, didn't have that. I commend that. That's got to be, even he said he that his record label was not happy about them. He's like, don't, they're like, don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys Keep don't, that to yourself. Yeah, don't tell anybody. You know, it's just an interesting, uh, it's an interesting story of people who said, we're, you know, yeah, we, we want to be in this industry that's this way and we want to do it differently. We're going to do it differently and we're going to find a way to be successful. Yeah, that's to me, I think that was like the, if I had kind of one theme going throughout it, it was just like, even in a place where, you know, we've done shows about talking about sales or careers where it's like, it really yeah. feels like it's like part of the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, well, it you can make this work uh-huh. doing anything. Yeah. Like if you're committed to it, except if you find maybe, the community. Maybe, except maybe like sommelier or... That might be tough. That or might like be tough. Iller, like the alcohol test, you know, like a, sure, barring, at a brewery. Yeah. Right, barring that maybe. Mm-hmm. That's about as, yeah, about right? as much of a job requirement as I as think you, as, there yeah. is. Yeah. His story was just really inspiring when in a place where it feels like it's not possible to be able to make it work somehow. Well, we hope you enjoyed the episode. We're rooting for you this week as we always are. Ashley, anything you want to leave? the people with this week. Yes, I just want to say thank you to the listeners. Thank you for following and subscribing. If you are a new listener, please check out our other episodes. This is season five. We have over 250 episodes, including expert episodes, Q&As, every topic you can imagine, lots and lots of helpful content. So please check it out. And if you feel moved to do so, we very much appreciate and any reviews that you can leave for us on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Very, very much appreciate it. And we very, very much appreciate hearing from you. You can always reach us at podcast at lionrock.life. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, 
we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.